welcome to Swarthmore Presbyterian Church's podcast. This is your host, Alex Evangelista. We are delighted you are here. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and share our podcast. You are now listening to a sermon recorded for September 19, 2021, titled, The Choices We Make, by Reverend Joyce Shin. Would you please pray with me? Loving God, you have so made us that we cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Give us a hunger for your word, and in that food, satisfy our daily need. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. The scripture lesson this morning is Psalm 1. Listen now for the word of the Lord. Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or take the path that sinners tread, or sit in the seat of scoffers. But their delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law they meditate day and night. They are like trees planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in its season, and their leaves do not wither. In all that they do they prosper, The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In 2015, To celebrate their 50th wedding anniversary, my parents took their daughters, sons-in-law, and grandchildren on a tour of South Korea. It was a gift to all of us. We visited places of personal significance to them, as well as places of historical and cultural significance. As part of our tour, we visited several Buddhist temples many of which were still decked out with decorations marking the Buddha's birthday, which I learned had taken place earlier that May. Thousands of brightly colored lanterns hung along the steep mountainous paths leading up to the temple, as well as from high temple ceilings. Tied to each of these lanterns was a wish for a particular blessing that would make people happy. Our tour guide explained that visitors to the temples could, for a small fee, write down a wish, which would then be hung on a lantern. In a moment of cynicism, our tour guide added his own commentary, that people give a dollar and wish for a million. Indeed, a lot of the wishes that people had written down were wishes for wealth. Others were for health, long life, and success. There's nothing surprising about these wishes. They are the same things for which people everywhere and always have wished. Ancient texts, whether religious or philosophical, whether from Eastern or Western parts of the world, show that people in ancient times had identified these things as constitutive of a happy life. And modern day research reveals the same to be true today. 
In fact, over the past three decades, there has been an exploding field of research that examines more globally what most people wish for. It is the relatively new field of study called the science of happiness. You may already be familiar with happiness research. Nobel Prize winners Daniel Kahneman and Angus Deaton have published extensively on the subject. Among other things, it examines how people define happiness and how they measure happiness. Did you know that we now have a world database for happiness? If you want to learn more about happiness, you can read the Journal of Happiness Studies or the World Happiness Report. Experts from across fields of psychology, economics, statistics, public policy, and public health review the state of happiness around the world in order to understand personal and national variations in happiness. And while it might seem strange, during the pandemic, the Atlantic Magazine has begun publishing a new column entitled, How to Build a Life, which is intended to help us identify the building blocks of happiness, family, career, friendships, and faith. All the research and writing seems to indicate that happiness is of pressing concern. I imagine everyone would be interested in the findings of this research. After all, who doesn't want to be happy? Interestingly, the research is teaching us that what we think brings happiness often does not. That we often mistake short-term pleasure for happiness. And that more often than not, we wrongly predict what will lead to long-term happiness. All this burgeoning research is also confirming things that we knew from philosophy, religion, and the arts for a long time. That happiness depends on a lot of factors, some subjective and others objective, some within and some outside our control. This was an insight that the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle already wrote about during the fourth century BCE. Having set out in his Nicomachean Ethics to ask and address the question of what constituted a good, happy life and how one could live it, he began by asking the wise and the many for their responses. As it turned out, he got a lot of different opinions. While some people named wealth as a necessary ingredient, others maintained that health was required. Some people said that long life was required and others said that no matter how long and well one lived, if the person's children do not have full and good lives, he cannot ultimately be considered happy. Aristotle's work has been so foundational to Western thought that, as far as I know, no one has been able to shake the recognition that what comprises happiness depends on things we can do something about and things we have no control over. Anyone who has known real hardship in life, the kind of hardship that makes you take seriously the fact that though you have some control over your life, much of life is beyond your control, has, I imagine, wrestled with the ethical question of how to be both an agent and a patient. We cannot pretend as though life were all about 
circumstances beyond our control, or the choices we make. This reality puts to the test every philosophical or religious outlook on life. And it's because of this hard test that certain religious views, even Christian views, have fallen by the wayside. The psalm we heard this morning offers the wisdom that living a good life has something to do with making good choices. Unlike the book of Job, this psalm does not spend any time acknowledging the hard or unfair circumstances that one might be born into that are beyond one's control. Assuming that life for the ancient Israelites was full of hardship and insecurity, the psalmist focuses on the choices that they nevertheless could make. The psalmist draws upon the binary formula of the two ways, so frequently found in the Bible, the way of wickedness and the way of righteousness. The psalm lays out a choice, either choose to live wickedly, to be in the company of wicked people and to take on their wicked ways, or choose to live wisely, meditating on how to be in right relationship with God and others. The psalm also lays out the consequences of each choice. The path of wickedness leads to self-condemnation, self-destruction. The path of right living leads to happiness. If you choose wickedness, you will perish. If you choose righteousness, you will endure. Wickedness leads to death, the other leads to life. Clearly, the psalm is intended to guide us to make the right choices in life. As serious as the consequences are, however, the psalm presents the two paths for life in a rather laissez-faire way. It is as though the psalmist knows that the reader, you and I, are free to accept and act upon the counsel of the wise or to reject it. The presentation of two paths, the high stakes, and the emphasis on the freedom to choose in this psalm reminds me of a story I read not long ago entitled, The Other Wes Moore. It's a story about two boys who grew up in Baltimore under similar life circumstances and had an identical name, Wes Moore. In 2000, the Baltimore Sun published an article with the headline, Local Graduate Named Rhodes Scholar. It was an article about Wes Moore. Just a couple months earlier, the same newspaper had published a series of articles about a robbery of a jewelry store that had resulted in the killing of a police officer and father of five children and a manhunt that ensued. Twelve days after the robbery, the last, the last two sus suspects were found in a house in Philadelphia. Surrounded by police and federal agents, they were apprehended. According to the article, the shooter was likely to receive the death penalty. The younger brother of the shooter was likely to be imprisoned for life. That younger brother was named Wes Moore. Upon reading this article about the fate of another person whose name was the same as his, 
Rhodes Scholar, Wes Moore, couldn't help but feel the eeriness of this coincidence. For years, even after he returned from studying in Oxford, he continued to wonder about the other Wes Moore. I couldn't let it go, he writes. If you'd asked me why, I couldn't have told you exactly. I was struck by the superficial similarities between us, of course. We'd grown up at the same time, on the same streets, with the same name. But so what? I didn't think of myself as a superstitious or conspiratorial person, the kind who would obsess over coincidence until it yielded meaning. Unable, however, to shake a feeling of connection to the other Westmore, he decided to write him a letter. By a letter to the Jessup Correctional Institution in Maryland, he introduced himself and explained how he had come to learn of his story. Just as soon as he mailed that letter, he worried that he had made a mistake. A month later, however, he received a response. And that was the beginning of a relationship between the two Wes Moors. Over time, they exchanged more letters and had face-to-face -face visits at the prison. It was in the prison's visiting room that they learned how much their life stories intersected until they completely diverged. The two men embarked on a project to tell their stories around a series of inflection points, choices they made, so as to offer guidance to a younger generation of boys who would also find themselves at the same crossroads and unsure which path to follow. Each section of the book begins with a snippet of a conversation between the two Westmores in the prison's visiting room. Westmore explains, it was very important to me that we return again and again to that visitor's room, the in-between space where the inside and the outside meet. I don't want readers to ever forget the high stakes of these stories and of all of our stories that life and death, freedom and bondage hang in the balance of every action we take like the psalmist who presents two choices and their high-stakes consequences, the two Westmores tell their stories of the choices they made and their irreversible consequences. Like the psalm, their stories are about choices and accountability. Once, when visiting Wes in the prison's visiting room, Wes asked, do you think that we're all just products of our environments? It's a question with which both men have had to wrestle. Their stories speak of an environment and conditions over which they as children had no control, no choice. The families into which they were born, their absent fathers, their single mothers, their poverty, their skin color, the neighborhoods where they lived. The circumstances and conditions of their lives made the consequences of their decisions more precarious, making their choices all the more significant. 
even a single stumble down the wrong path or a tentative step down the right one could determine one's whole life. Simple daily choices of how to spend your time, where to spend your time, in whose company to be, whether or not to retaliate, what time to return home, which route home to take, and whether or not to study had high stakes. These were choices that the not-imprisoned Wests, when he was an adolescent, and his friend Justin had to make every day. Wests met Justin when his mom moved the family from Baltimore to the Bronx. Wes and Justin had a lot in common. They both lived in a really rough, poor, and drug-infested part of the Bronx. They both had single moms who worked three jobs so that they could send their sons to Riverdale, a private school in the only affluent oasis in the Bronx, a decision driven by fear of what could happen to their sons if they were sent to public school. They were both among the few black-skinned students in their school. Justin knew that Wes's grades were slipping and that if Wes didn't bring up his grades, he would be put on probation. So on the subway ride to school one day, Justin asked Wes, did you study yet for the English test on, on Wednesday? Wes hadn't. Wes remembers breaking it down for his friend, saying, the problem wasn't what I knew or didn't know. The problem was that they didn't understand my situation, my long trip to and from school every day, my missing father, my overworked mother, the changing routes I took every day from the train just so no one with bad intentions could case my routine. I continued throwing excuses at Justin, but started to wither under the heat of his glare. Justin had it worse than I did, but was still one of the best performing kids in the class. My litanies of excuses trailed off. In the end, Wes's grades slipped and his mother decided that he should go to military school, so he was sent to finish high school at Valley Forge Military Academy. There he encountered men who would become his mentors. One in particular, Colonel Murphy, said something that Wes would never forget. When it's time for you to leave this school, leave your job, or even leave this earth, you make sure you have worked to make sure it mattered you were ever here. Reflecting on this, he writes, the notion that life is transient, that it can come and go quickly, unexpectedly had been with me since I had seen my own father die. In the Bronx, the idea of life's impermanence underlined everything for kids my age. It drove some of us to a paralyzing apathy, stopped us from even thinking too far into the future. Others were driven to what in retrospect was a sort of permanent state of mourning for our loved ones who always seemed at risk and for our own lives which felt so fragile and vulnerable. But I started to see it a little differently that day. Life's impermanence, I realized, is what makes every day so precious. It's what shapes our time here. It's what makes it so important that not a single moment 
be wasted. Given the precariousness of their life circumstances, it is understandable that both West Moors were deeply affected by a sense of life's impermanence. It's understandable, too, that the abiding sense of life's impermanence would, as Westmore explains, impact their sense of agency, raising the stakes for every choice they made. For them and other young people who grew up in similar circumstances, too many choices had life or death consequences. For one of them, right choices saved his life. And for the other, wrong choices led to life in prison. To the ancient Israelites who also were living in such precarious conditions, the psalmist presents two paths with high stakes and the freedom to choose between them. While not all the conditions that lead to happiness are things we can choose, the psalmist does not, does not allow us to pretend that our lives are completely determined by circumstances beyond our control. He reminds us that even in the most desperate of circumstances, we have the freedom to choose life. For this, thanks be to God. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon recorded for September 19, 2021, titled, The Choices We Make, by Rev. Joy Shin. We'll see you soon, and may the peace of Christ be with you.